to Intrepid Times, uh, your home for narrative travel, writing with heart. And it's it's no surprise that we are big believers in the importance and the power of travel writing and indeed literature in general over on this podcast. And it seems to be a subject that is in need of defense. And I'm not necessarily saying that's what we're going to do today. Um, there are much better, more persuasive voices defending literature out there. But we're kind of thinking in terms of for people who consider writing and literature in the written world word to be extremely important for them. And they're thinking about pursuing it as a career or they've studied literature or considering studying literature or going back to school to studying literature. Or maybe they've had a corporate career and they want to see if they can make writing a second, uh, second wind, a second career for them. How relevant is that still now? What are the kind of realistic possibilities out there? And how does our assessment as full-time professional writers and editors kind of connect with the general sort of consensus view out there? I don't know, Jennifer, that's a fairly broad scope, but does that um, kind of capture our intentions with this brief uh, podcast episode? I think that hits the nail on the head pretty close. I mean, it's a, it's a big nail, right? <laughs> um, yeah, talking about, you know, the humanities is always an interesting topic uh, nowadays. But yeah, I mean, honing in on, you know, can you still have a successful career in writing or editing or something related to the humanities? Uh, I mean, it's, I wouldn't call it a hot topic because you know, that's kind of the opposite of what it is right now. Uh, it seems to be kind of fading from from people's consciousness a little bit. But it is a topic certainly worth exploring and exploring, hopefully, in, you know, a realistic but positive way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we both studied uh, topics in the humanities and, you know, we both established, I think, careers that we're both pretty happy with overall um, out of those studies. But, yeah, I think people nowadays have a lot more anxiety around, you know, is it worth it to go into these areas? Um, and what does that look like in a world that seems to be, you know, increasingly focused on, you know, developing the next great technology? Um, you know, what place does the humanities and writing and literature have in all of that? Um, I don't know, Nathan, you know, when you were getting ready to head off to university, I mean, was humanities at the top of your list? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's funny that because, I mean, I so I did my degree in humanities, majored in history, minor in English literature. I actually started off doing philosophy, but moved to history I, I, for various reasons. But I kind of it was funny for me, that kind of idea that I had to do a vocational degree wasn't massively deafening. I think I had, you know, I have a family of quite literary people, uh, including publishers and writers um, on both sides of the family tree. So I think there was always kind of an understanding that education does not have to be training, you know, generally learning about the world and learning about humanities, even if it is not explicitly, quote unquote, useful, is a fundamentally good thing to do and has merit in its own right. So I felt kind of quite supported in that. Um, whether I got a huge amount out of the degree itself, um, remains to be seen. Uh, for me, university was probably more of a social uh, experience. Although what I do for work now, which is writing and editing, uh, is certainly very similar to the skill set that was evaluated and stressed during that period. 
Interesting. I mean, so yeah, it sounds like you're, I mean, you're, you've already come to, you know, your time at university with this understanding that writing can be useful. I mean, do you see now more people having that problem where they're maybe not coming from that background or, you know, their parents or friends or whoever it may be is stressing that, you know, writing and the humanities are important? Yeah, completely. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. So there is a New York Times article by Pamela Paul, which begins um, showing how the number of English majors, uh, English and history majors in college in America has fallen by a third over the last decade. The New Yorker recently published an article called The End of the English Major by Nathan Heller. Um, and there is all this chatter online about the importance of STEM, um, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. I had to double check that because um, I just wanted to make 100% sure, you know, us humanities can, majors can be flaky. And of course, STEM is important. Tech is helpful for all of us as are, of course, um, that M can sometimes be referred to as medicine. That's what I wanted to confirm. Of course, that's extremely helpful. But we also need a world where people can write and communicate and can understand things in a in a non-linear way. And I think a few things are coming together at the moment. One is that in this world where everyone is hyped about tech and technology and everyone wants to be um, Steve Jobs, the way to think in a calculated, material, metric-driven, analytical way has been extremely prized economically. Um, and the other kind of conflicting thing is that a lot of the joys of literature, the joys of writing and storytelling and reading have been slightly corrupted or diluted by political forces, by this analytical or critical mentality that has made everything need to justify itself in, in a way that is almost antithetical to its purpose. Yeah, that's interesting. It's making me think about a part in that New Yorker article that you mentioned that was talking about, you know, people nowadays really like to point out that there is a problem, but they don't necessarily like to explore why that became a problem or, you know, the underlying forces behind it. You know, we live in a society today where, you know, just being able to point out you know, that this is an issue that I care about um, seems to, you know, kind of justify just whatever opinion you may have. Um, and most of the time we don't even expect it to be followed by, you know, intelligent argument. So is that part of, you know, that corruption that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think so. And I also think like, this is not necessarily an original point, but I think it's a useful one that the way in which literature is taught in schools has never been particularly designed to facilitate the enjoyment of it. I mean, for people who like reading, we like it despite our schooling when we were made to analyze similes and metaphors and what does the cow symbolize here? despite that, uh, not necessarily because of it. And this is not necessarily something I want to get into because I'm just not massively qualified to speak of it, but the data is showing from this New York Times article um, that we referred to, and also it's explored in the New Yorker piece, that a lot of this, the current political mood 
And we see this in the travel writing world as well with buzzwords and phrases that critics would label wokeism and others would call social justice. And again, I, I'm not going to pontificate on this, um, but they have introduced an element which I think is making some people uncomfortable or is at least distracting from that goal of finding pleasure in it. I'm not saying there isn't merit. I mean, criticism evolves with the times and is by definition modern because how can you not bring a modern perspective to bear on things? And I think that's legitimate and okay as long as it's done within that framework of how can we get the most out of this literature and instead of finding new ways to to hate or dismiss and to remove something from the canon, what joys can we find in new pieces in contrast to the old ones? So this entire flavor of literature is something to be loved and bathed in, and that can make not only the moment of pleasure of reading better, but can improve your entire life just by understanding how other people through the ages, people who didn't necessarily look like you or think like you or have the same beliefs as you, and understanding how they navigated the world can make your experience of the world richer. And that framework is something that I think is more tenuous than I have known it to be, or it certainly seems that way. Maybe that's just another curse of modernism, that it always seems like this thing is going to be lost and maybe it never is. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, this interest in, you know, trying to understand other people, um, I think that's become politicized and we definitely don't have to get into that. But I think that that is one of the things that I found the most joy in in literature was that, you know, I could read about, you know, a woman in a concentration camp during World War II. And I have never met this woman. I would never have met this woman. I never will meet this woman. But I can understand what she was going through. And I can understand the situation more than if I was, you know, simply, you know, reading a Wikipedia page about World War II. You know, literature helps you connect with humanity and other people, the people around you, even, you know, at the time, you know, in ways that, you know, other areas of study just can't. I mean, literature encompasses history, it encompasses sociology, it encompasses psychology. I mean, it includes all these different areas, you know, kind of packed into one wonderful, you know, area. Um, and, you know, that the way that it pushes you to open your mind to trying to understand people who aren't like you, I mean, for good reason, because they existed at a different time or they believed in different things or, you know, what have you. Um, the way that literature does that was, you know, something that really called to me. And I don't know if it's calling to people in the same way nowadays. I think it will always call to people, but whether that calling can be supported by institutions and then whether through or without institutions, I mean, universities and schools, and whether that calling can then be translated into a career to any degree. I think those things are very much in doubt. I mean, I think that I don't think there's a world in which you can stop people from completely loving literature. I mean, look, in common under, you know, the Soviet Union, people would still find banned books and read them and, and feel that calling. But does that is there a possibility within the frameworks of that civilization that you live in for that love and that passion to be nurtured, to be given freedom, to step on some toes or challenge norms and challenge perspectives, to be a little bit awkward or difficult or strange? And can that be translated and rewarded um, commercially so that you can be a writer and stare out the window all day 
and then write some pages and, and people like that. I mean, is that still a thing that that happens? Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, my time at university um, and I was an English lit major. Um, you know, the way you're talking about, you know, this ability to be strange you know, I felt like that was one of the things that was almost, you know, the most uncomfortable for me as an English major was that I felt like a very normal person in a major that felt like it was made for people who wanted to be strange. And I wonder if that is part of what's keeping people, you know, at arm's length is that, you know, the English major, or humanities majors in general have a very, you know, specific stereotype. And, you know, that was, it was uncomfortable. It was, you know, I went to, you know, the poetry readings where, you know, slam poetry, you know, spoken by people in, you know, these baggy pants and colorful sweaters, you know, that was normal on a Friday night. But I always felt, you know, just like slightly out of place, you know, like I was trying to, you know, fit into something that didn't quite open its arms completely to just like every kind of person. I mean, do you have to have a desire to not fit in in order to, you know, be a humanities or an English or a history major? Um, can you use that major in ways that, you know, are outside the typical writer stereotype? And I think that maybe is what many universities are struggling with is how to open this to people who, you know, may have thought that they were going to study science, but then they really discovered that, you know, literature is their true passion and they want to study it. But, you know, they don't necessarily fit in with this image that you have of the typical writer on campus. Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah I, I totally I totally get what you mean. Having survived um, at least one slam poetry evening myself, I, I can completely relate to that feeling of of strained uh, awkwardness when you're kind of like, like intellectually support this project and what's going on. But I also kind of wish I wasn't here. And like, I'm just glad that these folks are happy. Like, yeah. And, and I also, I don't know if there is, I'm, I am, I think to the maximum, maybe not the maximum extent, but to the minimum viable extent, uh, a believer in some sane and regulated form of capitalism. And I don't think that every person who desires to create literature should be made a millionaire simply because they wish to do so. I think, you know, that certain things have more merit than others, how that is evaluated, whether the free market is the only judge of that, um, or whether that there are some deference that can be given to these great and venerable institutions to, move the needle on that is, is something else. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the most prestigious prizes in the world of writing is the Pulitzer. And so we see a huge deal in the world of journalism. But a friend of mine sent me some stats about how the Pulitzer Prize um, for, for poetry helps move sales of these poetry books by about like 20 or 30 copies. I mean, there, there are some that poetry books that had sold all of 50 copies before they won the Pulitzer and then they sold about 120 total. I mean, that disconnect between the institution and the market, between the academy and the street is a little bit farcical uh, as well. So if there is a role in literature and like obviously there there is, 
literature should be popular and, and in many ways it is but what is popular and what is also considered prestigious or important by these institutions have a lot of gap between them like poetry is having a kind of renaissance at the moment there are instagram poets and twitter poets and they there are some who sell millions of books but these are certainly not in the style of the folks that we studied at university and it's not stuff that i personally feel particularly drawn to either so do we want to narrow the definition of literature to something a little bit more challenging and, and nebulous that's interesting i mean i don't know i don't have an answer um i think that i think that you know if humanities majors are going to stay relevant we have to make it more open instead of making it you know, putting it to a higher stand. You know, what we call literature is always flexible, of course. But, you know, can an Instagram poet, like, can that be considered literature? You know, what they're saying on these videos? I think it can. Um, you know, is it something that should be selling millions of copies? I don't know. Um, I think that if somebody can make money off of what they're writing and what they're really passionate about, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think that there is you know, a marketing problem in that, you know, if you study English literature, the one of the questions you get is, oh, so you want to you want to write a book, right? So that's like the only career path that could possibly come out of an English major. Oh, you want to write a book, right? That's like your ultimate goal. And for some, it certainly is. You know, a lot of people study English literature um, because they want to write a novel. You know, they want to be a writer, um, which is totally justified. Um, I think that that can absolutely be a great goal for many people, but it's certainly not the only one you can have as an English major. I think that's one of the big problems is that, you know, the lack of awareness of what you can do with an English or a lit or any humanities major, you know, the possibilities are honestly endless, which I think is what scares a lot of people away from these majors. I mean, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do after university when you studied uh, history? No, I, I always knew that I would write. And one of the reasons why I studied history was because I I was always reading and I and I felt that I had and wanted to communicate and, and and write and I wanted to know more about the world that I would go and write about. And some a tiny bit of knowledge about how to read history, how to evaluate different historical perspectives and historiography going into how different historians have disagreed and how the perspectives on events and the, their context and their meaning can change over time and knowing what it means and why someone is writing from that point of view and when we should be skeptical and when we should check the source versus that that really helps in in understanding the world and evaluating what's happening around us today i mean that's so incredibly useful and i i don't i think i did have some broader sense of that I want to be able to understand things better and then talk about them consequentially uh, in a better way. Um, but I didn't necessarily have a specific career goal in mind. I mean, my contemporaries um, have either gone on to be journalists, which is a pretty um, logical extent, um, logical kind of destination. Uh, or or lawyers, which um, is also must be paid, but uh, it's also logical, and that, I guess that's the closest way in which the professions uh, interacts with uh, with the humanities, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's interesting because you know when I when I decided to study English lit, and so to be entirely honest, I didn't start out studying English lit. I started out studying uh, English education. I was going to be a teacher, and to be fair, yes, I was a teacher for several years because you know I wanted to travel, and that was kind of the easy thing to do with my particular degree. Um, but you know, after about like three or four semesters, I was like, yeah, I'm not into teaching, so I, you know, changed the major to English Lit uh, and did a double minor in creative writing and philosophy, um, all of which are uh, humanities based and not the most well received um, by people who are asking, uh, well, what are you going to do after university? And so, yeah, I mean, I went into this, you know, not not planning to, you know, be a writer, kind of like what you were talking about, where you always knew you wanted to be a writer. I knew that I was a decent writer, um, which is why I was, you know, fairly comfortable majoring in English. But I, I honestly had no idea what I was going to do after university. And which is why I ended up teaching for a while. Um, and I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about well, you know, you don't really have to have everything figured out, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, when I got out of university, I was like, well, I mean, I really do need to do something. Um, and I did end up going to Thailand to teach English because that was, you know, a pretty safe, quote unquote, job market. There was a lot of English teacher positions in Thailand. I mean, it was almost 100 percent ensured that you were going to get a job within about a month or two of being there. Um, and I did. And so. I mean, having open options, I think, is very scary for people. I mean, you know, majoring in the humanities requires a lot more flexibility. And the way you think about how you're going to get a job, and what kind of job you are going to end up having after university and being open to, you know, that possibility is exciting, but it's also super terrifying, um, especially when you've got the pressure of, you know, your family and your friends asking, you know, well, what job are you going to have? You know, how are you going to make money? Um, all, you know, valid questions. But, you know, the value of a humanities major, of course, lies elsewhere. But it is also entirely important that you will have some kind of income. I mean, so how do we start to quell the fears of people who, you know, really want to major in the humanities, but really aren't sure what to do with that afterward? Yeah, com completely. I think that's such a great summary of the of the challenge so your way to sort of bridge that gap because because by, by the time you're kind of established enough that you can make a living as a writer writing articles and editing and and working within that world of publishing and editorial normally there are you know you can go and get a job at a book publishing house in the editorial department but it's very hard and competitive to do and the pay is is horrendous you can probably live off it but it's not great simply because there are so many candidates for every offering and book publishing has never been massively lucrative unless you have um prince harry on your on your list but there's ways to bridge that gap and I, your way english teaching uh, is is a very popular one and also the massive benefits of that is that you get to live like you did in in places like thailand um the path i took i mean i had a bit of a unusual circumstance in that I'd started whilst very young, a kind of quasi online business back when that was kind of still new and there were still a lot of opportunities. So I had uh, income that I could kind of be a quasi digital nomad with before the term 
kind of existed. And when I didn't want to do that anymore, and I knew I had this passion for and background in writing, I kind of was able to had the, I guess the confidence, I suppose, to put myself out there as a writer. And at, at first it was writing travel articles for a travel agency in China when I was living there. And then um, because it's, you know, you need to make money doing copywriting in the business world, writing websites and so on. I mean, that's a low hanging fruit, I suppose. It's not easy. It's actually very, very difficult work, but there's a lot of it out there. Um, even perhaps even especially in the world of AI copywriters, actually humans, the value that humans bring to it is, is more and more recognized. I've had so many people recently reaching out to me offering writing jobs that I'm not, who wouldn't do, I have doing other things, but I'm expanding my circle of people who want to be professional copywriters. So if anyone's listening, has experience and needs roles, um, hit me up. It's like what I'm trying to say is that writing is in demand and there are a lot of ways to put that skill to use. Um, it's not just being a journalist or becoming a New York Times bestselling author on your pathway to doing that, to getting established. You can practice um, in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, the extremely famous writer, got his start as a commercial copywriter. Um, some of his most famous lines were the puns for the Aero chocolate, uh, enjoy a bubble, and so on. That's all him. It's the famous um, award-winning novelist. So making a living as a writer in any capacity uh, is respectable. And I, and I think maybe that's where literature can kind of eat its own tail. Like if you're constantly in the pursuit of this like sort of artistic ideal of purity, then it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to make a living at it at least at first. And you can kind of labor away in your weekends and mornings and on that great novel and then hope that one day it will take off. And that's a very respectable way to do it. But whilst you're doing that, you're going to want to work at something else or you work as a writer and not necessarily compromise your principles, but do things that are not artistic or literary, but they still involve using those same muscles. Um, either as your whole career or as a pathway to something else or or a little bit of both. Um, like, it's funny, I, I meet the people who are passionate about literature and reading and writing like we are, but who don't do it as their jobs, whose actual jobs are completely disconnected from it. Who knows what? Um, and they write in their spare time. Sometimes I feel a bit envious of them because their passion is completely pure. It's unconnected by the need to be good at it so you can pay rent. You know, like the need to keep this person, this editor or this client or this reader happy so you can go out to dinner tomorrow. Like to, to separate that passion from that career. I think that's also totally legit. Like I don't think that you need to make humanities and literature your career in order for you to be honoring it and for it to be a part of your life. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, how there is a lot of writing work out there. And I wonder why that still feels so out of reach for so many people. You know, why is that still a question of, you know, how are you going to get a job after, you know, studying English? Like, why aren't people aware of the plethora of, you know, writing opportunities out there? I mean, have you explored this at all? Yeah, and I think I was kind of grumbling about this to you earlier before we started recording, which is that we have so many fabulous, talented, reliable, brilliant writers in our intrepid times. 
um, family, our interns, our regular contributors, our competition entries. Most of the people that we deal with are, are wonderful. We do get a huge amount of applications for our internship roles, um, just people pitching stories that do so in such a clumsy way. It's like no one has ever taught them how to present themselves as a professional writer. And there are just some sort of really fundamental basic things um, that people maybe just have never had the opportunity to learn, which is, for example, that if you're offering your services to a publication such as ours as an intern or as a regular columnist or something, in your pitch, do not only talk about yourself, talk about what value you can bring to that publication. Demonstrate the fact that you're a reader of that publication. Show an opportunity that you can bring to them. I mean, there are these things that if you study marketing or business or law, they will teach you how to operate strategically in the professional environment that you're in. Whereas in the literary and writing place, I really think that people tend not most people out there who might be wonderful writers who have an artistic soul, who voracious readers. When it comes to that strategy of right, how am I going to get this writing gig? How am I going to use this one opportunity and translate it into a regular job? And then how am I going to take that regular job and use it to expand my platform? Or I'm getting paid $20 per article for this prestigious publication. And some of the big prestigious publications pay very badly. Um, I deserve more than that. I can prove that because of the number of people writing them that I'm worth more than that. How do I make a case for a pay rise? Like, how do you do all of those things? And this stuff I've learned the hard way and still get wrong, but it's just simply having that experience and that attitude behind it. And I think part of it is that it's, more complicated to sell writing because everyone thinks they can write and everyone literally can. I mean, everyone can write an email, everyone can write a shopping list, but can you write in a way that demonstrates results? And how do you as a professional writer articulate that difference that you can provide that your client can't just do or the editor can't just do with ChatGPT or with their high school education? What difference do you make and why does that difference matter? And the other is this entire kind of business, commercial, strategic way of thinking that I'm expressing and talking about now. There's this, I, I mentioned it before when I was speaking about like how literature is almost self-consciously, willfully uncommercial, that if you're doing something commercial with it, you're being untrue to the to the nature and the spirit of it. And part of that is the mythology of literature, that you're going to be this toiling, struggling artist, but one day someone will discover your brilliance. And if you actually make an effort to sell your work or sell yourself and learn in a commercial way, then you're being untrue to it. And I just don't really agree to that. So I would really encourage writers to learn the business of writing and to learn a little bit about sales and commercial marketing. I know that doesn't sound cool and literary, but if you see writing as a product that is far more than that, but anything that is exchanged for money is to some extent a product or service, it's very not literary, it's very not cool, it's very not moving. But if you want it to be your career and not just your passion, you might have to start thinking in these ways. And again, if you don't want to, if you want it to be the sacred pure thing, 
then it's totally legit to get a completely different job and do the, have this as something you do on, on your weekends. Yeah, and, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, that might be part of the answer. I mean, you know, we're certainly not experts, uh, but it might be part of the answer for, you know, universities and these programs where, you know, you get an English lit degree and you're not really sure what to do with it. You know, maybe part of the answer is, you know, pairing up with the marketing department and, you know, including a couple of classes on, like, how to market yourself as a writer. Right? I don't remember having any of that in my program. I was lucky enough to have other opportunities that did help me in other ways, you know, how to present myself as a professional and things like that. I remember one class, it was kind of like an intro to publishing or something. It's not the exact name, but, you know, the class was essentially publishing the, you know, literary magazine for the university. And so we got this whole experience of, you know, receiving submissions and deciding what got to go in there. And, you know, we got to see how people were presenting themselves and how that influenced our decisions and, you know, having the whole experience of putting this whole magazine together, you know, working with, you know, my classmates and making these decisions and designing and all of these things. I mean, that was a very, you know, quote unquote, professional experience. Um, and it was a it was a class that I was able to take at university. And I think that, you know, some of the answer lies in, you know, making sure that the program you're choosing is offering, you know, bountiful opportunities for you to explore that kind of professionalism and practice that because it is such a huge part if you want to become a writer or an editor, you know, anything in kind of the literary field, you know, you really need to embrace what you can bring to the table. Um and I think, you know, one of the best things you can do if you're studying in the humanities is look for, you know, research groups, look for internships. I mean, networking is huge in this area. I mean, if you know somebody who knows somebody, I mean, you know, Nathan just a couple minutes ago was offering, yeah, hit me up. Like, I can probably get you in touch with somebody. You know, networking is huge in this area. I mean, I cannot stress that enough. Once you know people who are working in editing or working in publishing or working in writing, I mean, if they can't, you know, connect you with somebody who can get you a job, they can at least offer some tips on how you can maybe go about looking in this place or this place. Have you ever explored, you know, working in this area? Um, I mean, even just kind of people who will work as kind of like mentors for you is really, really nice. Um, you know, again, it's not it's not a straight line like maybe you would find if you were studying to be a doctor or if you're studying to be an engineer, you know, you have kind of a set path there for you. Uh, the humanities are not like that. Uh, the humanities, which I, I actually find incredibly exciting is one of the things that I loved about my major was that there were so many possible paths that you could take. And yeah, that was terrifying. And I was lucky enough to, you know, if I, found myself completely, you know, out of work and super poor after university, I knew that, you know, my parents would happily have a bedroom waiting for me back at home. Not everybody has that, of course. And, you know, maybe that is one of the issues around, you know, choosing your major. But I think that you have to do a little more heavy lifting with a major like this, where, you know, you are putting yourself out there in very different ways and presenting yourself as somebody who's not only a good writer, but somebody who's reliable and will get things to you on time and, you know, is creative and, you know, creative work is, is difficult. Meeting deadlines while doing creative work is not always easy. If you can prove that you can do that, that's a huge bonus. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that this willingness to put yourself out there and be flexible and be vulnerable and seek out opportunities, even though they're not necessarily in the area that you imagined yourself working in, 
if it's any kind of opportunity in that field, I think that that is very useful. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're often kind of a lot of this applies to kind of the young sort of university age listener. I know we have a lot of people in our community who are also kind of maybe looking for their next chapter and might be in a position where they can retire from their career for a year whilst they figure this out. But, but for folks who are also, you know, have the full time job. And one thing I say this in my upcoming book, which is a little bit too early for me to start plugging yet, but um, we'll talk about it in the future, no doubt, which is quite relevant to this conversation actually is, as it happens, um, is that don't just wholesale, especially if you have a family or a mortgage or rent, don't just wholesale be like, I'm quitting my job and becoming a writer. Start building up a portfolio first, get a few clippings published, develop that reputation that backs up what you do because when you go for a job as a writer whether it's a journalist or an editorial or a copywriting gig the question is show me some clippings where have you been published and the authority of those clippings matters almost as much as the quality of writing um that that you provide the the place where it is so start building that up and then think what is it that you bring in addition to being able to write so you have this capacity and flair for words you can communicate in a concise entertaining direct compelling informative manner what is it you bring on top of that are you a commercially savvy person are you analytical can you talk about search engine optimization can you talk about value propositions or are you an expert in a particular place and time which as a journalist you can bring uh, insight to that other people don't have so writing is in, in a lot of ways kind of a meta discipline um, writing, I suppose, in its purest form, absolute writing. I mean, that's that's poetry, and I don't know how to make a living as a poet. Um, people do. I'm not saying it's impossible. I don't personally have experience in that way, but I have experience making a living writing and editing through nonfiction, through prose. And in that world, you need some other knowledge of the world in which you're interacting, whether it's a business knowledge or a regional knowledge or a knowledge of some kind of overarching trend that means that what you are selling, what you're putting out into the world has a unique value. And the more specific you can get, the more expert you can get, the more specialized, like in any other profession, um, the more of a commercial stability um, you'll be able to have with that. Yeah. And, you know, I really like your point about, you know, you don't have to go all in. And I mean, just to reassure people, I mean, that's not what I did either. I mean, Nathan, you were talking about your kind of slow entrance into the writing world, um, you know, by copywriting and things like that. I mean, mine was fairly similar. I mean, I was at the time I was working as a teacher, I was working at a university here in Chile, where I currently live, um, teaching English, I was teaching English lit. Um, and, you know, I was I was really getting tired of teaching. I was over it, which, you know, some people listening may just be super over their jobs and they really want to be a writer. I was there. I was at that point and I was slowly kind of getting little travel articles published. Um, and I got one published on Intrepid Times. And, you know, a couple weeks later, I had just kind of like looked up Intrepid Times and kind of seeing what was going on. I noticed Nathan was just kind of like, doing things on his own. Uh, Intrepid Times was still kind of in its, I mean, early-ish <laughs> phase. And I, I reached out. I, there was no like open job. There was nothing. I just reached out to Nathan. I said, hey, like, are you interested in, you know, having a second pair of eyes, you know, for Intrepid Times? 
obviously in a very uh, well-written professional way uh, because he responded. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was, I mean, it wasn't certainly enough to live on at the time. Um, writing was not my main source of income. I wasn't able to immediately quit my job as a teacher, but, you know, that was, you know, a foot in the door. And I wouldn't have gotten, you know, the position in Intrepid Times if I hadn't had other publications to back it up that I could show, hey, like, yeah, I can write. Um, I know how to edit. I'm pretty good with grammar, you know, things like that. And it's like these slow entrances, I think, you know, it's not really what people imagine when they want to go into writing. They really just want to, you know, pop out a book and make a million dollars and yada, yada, yada. But that, that's really not how writing tends to go. Um getting a foot in the door is huge. And so, you know, sending out messages, asking for opportunities, um, that's a big thing. It's a big thing. And so, you know, if you're in midlife and, you know, at a job that you're just really not enjoying and you really want to explore writing, I mean, start slow and start trying to get things published. When you get a couple of things published, you know, start trying to ask for other opportunities. Um, I think that's an entirely valid way to go about getting a writing career and getting started. And it may take years, um, but if you really love writing and literature and editing, you know, it's it's worth the wait. Absolutely. And I, I will say one thing, though, that um, there will be days when you're just thoroughly sick of your job, uh, even when writing is your job. <laughs> there, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I concur. <laughs> um, yeah, I find that when I'm, my, I'm really busy at work, which I ha have been a lot recently, um, reading, you know, dozens of intrepid time submissions, writing for others reading for others that I don't read anywhere near as much as I used to um, for pleasure. It's, it's, it's funny like that. Do you find the same? Yeah, I do. I've tried to get into a better habit because I had found, you know, for a long while that I like reading had kind of fallen off the map for me. And I was so, so upset when I realized that, you know, I just kind of stopped one day. I'm like, I haven't read a book in like three months. And to me, that was crazy. I mean, I was always reading. I was always reading. And, you know, I've recently started trying to just make it a habit of, you know, reading half an hour before bed, you know, it's just kind of become a routine. And but yeah, reading for pleasure has become much more of, you know, I have to make it intentional. It's not just, you know, I have some downtime and I pick up a book. You know, usually it's, you know, I have some free time, but I have all these other things to do or I'm super busy with work and I have no free time. Um, and so reading has kind of fallen down the priority list. Um, so, yeah, if you're working and, you know, writing and editing literature, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get to just constantly read books and uh, enjoy yourself. Uh, it's not, you know, what a writing career looks like. Um, but I also do find that I enjoy reading just as much as I used to. I don't know if that's the case for you, Nathan. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I definitely enjoy it just as much as I used to, even though I find that that mental muscle is worn down at work. So is not always something that I want to do. It just feels so similar to what I do at work that when I'm taking it and I'm stressed at work, or taking a step back, it's not quite, it doesn't feel so much like a break. Sometimes it does. I guess what I'm reading has to be quite different than what I'm working on. Um, yeah, interesting. So beware the writing career, folks. When writing becomes your job, it will be your job. <laughs> and with all the um, the pros and cons associated, associated with that, um, I think that's it for me on this topic, Jen. I, I think we, I find myself having more clarity on what we were talking about at the end of the podcast than I did at the beginning. And I suppose that's uh, a job well done. The, the difference between this and a piece of writing is you can't go and edit and 
introduce a much more coherent introduction now that you've finished it, knowing what you're talking about in the first place. But I, I know our listeners have the the fortitude, generosity, and patience to to bear with us. And a huge thank you to uh, everyone who did. Thank you, Jen. This was good. Thanks, Nathan.